Hey, everybody. Welcome into the back room. I'm Andy Ostroy. Uh, we have a very interesting conversation for you today with my friend and writer and author, Sarah Tuttle Singer, who lives in Israel. We're going to get to Sarah in a couple of minutes. But first, thank you for tuning in today. We appreciate you listening. And we'd love to hear your comments. So email us at backroomandy at gmail.com and or post on our social media. And we'll read some feedback next time. And if you like the podcast, please follow or subscribe, and you'll be notified every time we post a new episode. Here's a couple of uh, items of feedback from this week. David Peterson writes, Trump is a criminal and a con man. The whole Trump organization is. Couldn't agree more. And then on our Rick Wilson interview, Penelope Salucci, apparently about everything, says, quote, Thanks, Rick Wilson. I couldn't have said it better myself. So, Let's get to our two big things. The first being Israel. So much news coming out literally by the minute. The latest is that we now learn that Israel, the IDF, has carried out select raids in Gaza over the last 24 hours, mainly searching for hostages. But there's also a 24-hour evacuation warning that was issued, and uh, it is expected that there will be a full-scale ground invasion tomorrow. And then the other bit of news that just came out literally within the last hour or two is that U.S. intelligence sources say that Israel was warned over several days in the week leading up to the attack. This was from unusual Hamas activity, um, unusual ground preparations. So the biggest question longer term is going to be what the hell happened? How did this massacre occur without... Israeli intelligence, U.S. intelligence, seemingly having any clue. Or were there warnings? Did warnings come from Egypt? And did these warnings either go blatantly unheeded? Or was Bibi Netanyahu preoccupied with diverting his attention and his military resources to the West Bank to protect the settlers? And or on his own self-preservation with changes to the judicial process and dealing with the political backfire at home? Those are all going to be amazing questions that are going to be raised and investigated once chaos and the crisis that they're currently in is over. But as of now, there's been over a thousand Israelis killed. There's the specter of a lot more deaths on both sides as this ground invasion eventually takes place. There's still hostages, including Americans, whose lives are at stake. I don't know. Just don't know where this is going. No, we're good. I feel I I have to say that I'm Jewish, but um, I really haven't had Israel in a place where I've wanted to visit. It's not uh, a top priority for me. I, I believe in its right to exist. And I have to say that I am sick. Like I'm physically sick. I have never been this concerned before. My empathy and sympathy is so high. The The massacre, the brutality, I'm disgusted and so angry and I'm scared. What Hamas did is awful. They're a terrorist organization. And I, I was waiting all day Saturday and Sunday for Facebook friends to mention something. I waited for the UN mm -hmm. to declare that this was horrific. I waited and I waited and I felt so isolated as a Jew, like in a way that I have never felt before. And I think that I basically knew that the retribution of how people were going to receive what Israel was going to do to defend itself was going to be equally as horrific. And I, I hated feeling both of those ways. 
And then even as a, I'm a human, right? So after six days of no water, food, electricity, there are so many babies and women who have done nothing. And it's an untenable situation. Group punishment is not going to make Palestinians be like, oh, gosh, Hamas was wrong. We're now going to be anti-Hamas. Somehow we're going to get together with Israel and, and figure this out. Like collective punishment is not going to work. And it's just, it's well, it just awful. Depends what the goal, it, it just depends what the goal is. If the goal is to keep your people safe and prevent another massacre like this, then maybe that goal can be accomplished. If the goal is to create peace in the Middle East between Israelis and Palestinians, something which has not been able to happen since 1947 and even talk about, you know, the strife between Jews and the rest of the world for centuries. Like, I don't know if that's a goal that can be reached. So it just depends on through what lens you look at it and what your stated goals are. Uh, and and those are good points. And, and I think the lens that one can look at it is that Saudi Arabia and Israel were really close to an agreement, mm-hmm. right? And when that happens, violence usually arises to derail that. Right. And of course, Iran doesn't want to be cut out. They don't want to be irrelevant. And so the destabilization of the Middle East is like horrifying. Mm-hmm. It's so scary. The big question is, you know, a full, let's say a full story is 10 points from one to 10. That's a full story. We could say the attack on Israel was horrific. It was the worst massacre against Jews since the Holocaust. That brings us to five. Then we could say, oh shit, look at the reaction. It's going to get ugly. Innocence. Palestinians in Gaza are going to, that brings us to eight. How do we finish this then? It's nobody, a great, nobody it's a great dis- question. Nobody disagrees. I, I see pictures of Palestinian kids being carried into bloody, like, that makes me ill. Yes. But I'm focusing on nine and 10. And what are, what, what are Israel's alternatives in preventing another massacre like that when the enemy, the perpetrator, the enemy, is hiding in civilian pop- populations, firing its missiles from civilian buildings, from hospitals, from schools, using its own people as human shields. How does Israel accomplish its goal if it doesn't move forward with the plans on the table right now? That's the question. And I, I just get back to it like American Jews sitting in New York, sipping my latte. I'm not gonna tell Israel how to keep its people alive. I don't have that right. I talk to people in Israel and we don't have the fear that they have every day when they wake up, how they're going to get through the day staying alive, if their families are going to be, be kept alive. And it's a very difficult situation. And It is, yes. I, I think Israel, just like it has since 1947, 48, it has to make whatever decisions it feels best and live with them. And only Israel and its people, who are terribly unified right now, like you cannot argue that they have come together, even their government. I mean, they, you know, Netanyahu and Benny Gantz are, are in, a, in an emergency unity government. And it's the, the leadership with the opposition together trying to figure this out. So they are unified. And uh, I think it's, it's unfair for people thousands of miles away who don't have that visceral dread and terror to start suggesting what Israel's supposed to do. We don't have any control anyway, right? We don't. But if that's where the enemy is stationed and you have to go after the enemy, what is your alternative 
to not do it, well, then you're putting more value on their lives than on your own people's lives. And that that's the cost of war. It's a binary choice. It's either go to the enemy and destroy them or not. And if the enemy says, hey, but we're going to be surrounding ourselves with innocent people and little kids, if you if the answer is, well, then Israel can't do that. Well, let's play this. Let's play that you know? out for a minute. Hamas isn't a new organization, neither is Hezbollah. It's they're, they. If it was that simple, Israel would have accomplished that goal. Well, no, because this is a direct re reaction to a heinous attack from land, sea, air. I mean, forget the colossal intelligence breakdown in Israel and in the United States, or the fact that there were perhaps warnings that went unheeded. That's for when the dust settles. But something happened, and now they got to react. So the question is, okay, let's get beyond. We all agree on the kumbaya stuff. Now what? Tell me how Israel keeps itself safe, how it gets rid of Hamas, destroys. Is anybody going to argue that we need to destroy Hamas? Hamas needs to be wiped off the face of the earth. Nobody's going to disagree on that. That's a great goal, and I think everyone agrees that that would be an aim. But we didn't get rid of ISIS. They're active in Afghanistan. They're active in West Africa. They're active in the Sahara. They're active in Somalia, Mozambique, um, the Democratic Republic of Congo. Uh, we wanted to get rid of the Taliban. We were in Afghanistan and spent a trillion dollars. The Taliban completely control Afghanistan now. So it's a great goal to get rid of a terrorist organization. But urban warfare doesn't work easily. And when there's 2 million people in the way, you have to be very careful. And more importantly, what was our leadership after 9-11? We went into Iraq. That was a disaster because we had a terrible leader. And they have a terrible leader right now. Netanyahu is terrible. Thank God the polling that came out today is showing that the public in Israel know how terrible he is. Mm -hmm. But having him be in charge of the retaliation is, to me, very dangerous because he will be willing to inflame the entire Middle East in ways that other leaders would be more nuanced with. Okay, I'm going to be repetitive because I think it, it keeps us honest. Let's just say I agree with a thousand percent of what you just said. Now get me to nine and 10. Nine and 10 is theoretical. There, there is no end, just like we wanted to, to get rid of the Taliban in Afghanistan. They're there now. They control Afghanistan. We had to leave after a trillion dollars in treasure. But we've also had no major terrorist attacks in this country since 9-11. So it's sometimes the end just justifies the means. And, it, and neither of us in this room, any of us in this room, are not in the IDF. We're not in the Knesset. <laughs> and that's my point, is that it's not fair for us to say what militaristic options... Israel may or may not have? We do know a few things. And we know that they're planning a land invasion. They've asked 1.1 million people to move in 24 hours, which the UN and multiple humanitarian organizations say is catastrophic in that time frame is, is impossible. And there are hospitals filled with children mm -hmm. who are supposed to move uh, south. And it's, it, it's just not tenable. This is not to say that they don't respond and forcefully. Of course, they're going to re respond forcefully. And of course, there's going to be collateral damage. It's how you do that. What is your What are your tactics? What is your strategy? And when someone that's like just, Netanyahu my... is in charge of the government, it concerns me But greatly. that's just my point. We don't know what those tactics are. We have no idea. But we know your leader our... is awful. 
there are military leaders in their situation room and they're going through all their options and whatever they decide to do i'm supporting because i don't know what the what the pros and cons are of each of those tactics i don't have the breadth of knowledge of, of the terrain of of where the cells are i have I have none of that information How, who would i be to say this military option would work better than this one if I do that, then all I'm doing is allowing my own personal emotions to get in the way of what may or may not be viable military options. Sure. I, I agree. Okay. And so what if something happened during when, when Trump was the leader, right? So you, you have a situation room and you have all these viable options. Who gets to decide how to respond? If you had someone like Trump or you had someone like Biden... Well, they, the, the, would they the answer make, is simple. Would they make whoever's this, running the country at the time makes those decisions. Sure. And, and then they live with them. And but to mass- and Trump did make a lot of wacko decisions That's and right. he lived with the out the outcome of we, that. He wasn't reelected. We the people also. We, well, we the people exercise our options by voting. I have a say in when my government does something and it fails, I vote him out of office. And that's what we did with Trump. And that to Maddie's point, it, that's very likely gonna happen with Netanyahu. Yes. And, and and that's why he brought in Benny Gantz, because he knows he knows he's in trouble. But I want to read something from uh, David French's op-ed in the New York Times today. This is really, really important and really speaks to the heart of what I'm saying. A little context here. He, he talks about proportionality in terms of response, and he also talks about distinction in terms of the players the, the, in, in, a, in, a, in a war. Mm-hmm. Distinction requires soldiers to separate themselves from civilians by wearing uniforms, for example, or by fighting from marked military vehicles. It prohibits militaries from fighting from places like hospitals, schools, and mosques. Hamas disregards the principle of distinction. Its fighters take aim from civilian buildings while wearing civilian clothes and using civilian vehicles. This prevents an attacking military with serious targeting problems. And it is easy to identify, say, an armored personnel carrier as a military vehicle. But what if there are four Toyota Tacomas in the street and only one of them is full of Hamas fighters? But here's the key, key point. When Hamas abandons the principle of distinction, then Hamas is responsible for the civilian damage that results. If Hamas fights from a hospital or stores munitions in a hospital, damage to that hospital is Hamas's responsibility. If Hamas fighters shoot at Israel defense forces from a home that contains a Palestinian family, then Hamas is responsible for the civilian casualties if that family is harmed in the resulting exchange of fire. And his point, which I uh, uh, totally agree with, is no one's denying the ca- catastrophic uh, consequences of this kind of ground invasion mm-hmm. and and response from mm-hmm. Israel. No one denies the, the, the suffering that's going to happen. But the point is, who's to blame? Does Israel say, no, we back down, we won't protect ourselves? Or it, this is Hamas's problem. There's some video I sent around to friends, including you guys. This guy, at the end, he goes, you want to free Palestinians? Freedom from Hamas. That is the problem. That is the problem. Israel cannot be handcuffed in its reaction to, to a Holocaust-adjacent massacre because of the actions taken by Hamas to willfully not play by the rules of engagement, to not play by the rules of distinction, and act like a terrorist organization. That should not hamstring Israel as a government, a legit government, from protecting its people. It's a very difficult situation, for sure. But that's why I keep bringing it back to 
numbers 9 and 10. Get me to 9 and 10. My whole life, I've been a guy about the end. I don't care about the means. You do it your way. Just as long as the, the end that you and I agree on, we get there. But if your means change the end, then I'm not going to support your means. The end is for Israel to protect its people from another massacre like that. Tell me the means if different than what's happening right the ends don't the means don't always justify the ends but the main issue is that israel faces is how do they respond to a war crime do they create more war crimes or do they do it in a way that is as careful as possible and under this administration with netanyahu being in charge i'd be very wary of the fact that they could create more problems for themselves as much as anybody else. But they have to figure that out and they have to live with sure. that decision. That's that's my point. I'm not arguing that. I'm not, I'm not be... saying that these are not valid points and concerns. All I'm saying is Israel has to make that call. Well, well they're definitely going to make that call. But the consequences will be global. So their call, if it's incredibly incompetent because Netanyahu's in charge, everybody pays a price. Depends. It just depends. Obviously, it depends on what he does. Yeah. But just as we wouldn't want Trump in charge of a major military conflict, I don't like the idea of Netanyahu being in charge of one either. Well, but that's why he created an emergency uh, unity government. We'll see. Because he's not. Well, it's, it, Politics is very different over in Israel. We hope. They don't operate like here, even when they look like they're operating like here. Even when they have a Trump-like dictator wannabe, they don't. Because Israel's democracy is a much truer democracy than ours. They can kick his ass out in a heartbeat. They don't wait four years. We can't wait. Look, I just think it's their call to make. And good or bad, they're going to have to live with it. Just like they have dealt with these kinds of situations on a much smaller, less heinous scale since the, the birth of the country. And I, I don't have the answers. I don't. I don't know... I often think there's never going to be peace there. Mm -hmm. Both sides are just so entrenched. Mm -hmm. I think we can all agree on that. Yes. And that's why, you know, leadership on the Palestinian side has failed it miserably since the beginning of time. Mm -hmm. Arafat fucking robbed them blind Mm -hmm. and exploited them for 35 years with the PLO, socking away all the money that we and other countries sent him into his bank accounts in Switzerland. Yep. And who's to blame for that? There's a point to where the Palestinian people they just got to demand more from their leadership than they have. Look at the, the, the status of the Palestinian people. They're still living in squalor. Why? Because their leadership are corrupt, selfish, exploitative, murderous. That's not benefited the Palestinian people. So we could sit here and blame Israel all we want for certain things. But there's never going to be peace because just like I'm looking at a table right now, I have to have somebody on the other side of the table yeah. who says, nah, I don't want to destroy you and wipe you off the face of the earth. Of course, that's part of their charter. It's it's right. an organization that's a complete it's a terrorist, terrorist organization. organization. Yeah. So we're certainly going to see where this goes. We ain't going to solve it in this room. Oh, it's, yeah. Now, what we could solve in this room is the chaos in the house. Can we? Yes. Please. Yeah. Also, as we uh, news broke, as we started this conversation, Georgia Congressman Austin Scott mm-hmm. tossed his hat into the ring. And so now he's going to duke it out with Jim. I didn't see anybody get sexually molested, Jordan. I tried to do a little intel on this guy. He's fairly mainstream. I like that he did say that what's going on right now, quote, makes us look like a bunch of idiots. Um, and I think... Uh, Either him or somebody else said 
the French have a word for it, clusterfuck. <laughs> so he is kind of mainstream, and uh, he's a McCarthy supporter. Marjorie Taylor Greene's going to love him. Yeah. So, but it doesn't look like anyone's going to get no. 217 votes. There's a dozen caucus. crazy people in the House, and, and all they need is five to be crazy, and no one gets it. Yeah. And Democrats are so quiet. It's so rare. Because we're just quiet, we're being quiet, handed. Quiet. It's like Christmas in October. We're being handed a gift. The, it's the gift that keeps on giving. You know, Hakeem is just sitting back going, do your thing, guys. Do it. And next n- next November, okay. we're going to be out there saying, hey, remember when they said give us control of Congress? This is what they did with it. So why why should we help them? I mean, there there is a fantasy of some kind of working together that enough rational Republicans would get together with five or ten, uh, yeah, you know, Democrats. Well, the the real liberal, the real libtard fantasy is that Republicans cross the aisle and vote to make Hakeem Jeffries Speaker of the House. Sure, I love that libtard fantasy. Sure. Can't we live that? It's fantasy? great. It's I'll great. take Liz Cheney as my libtard. It's fantasy. great, but what's likely going to happen is that they're going to go to him and say, "Give us the votes." We'll get rid of this fucking impeachment inquiry against Biden. We'll. Oh, yeah, that'll go over. We'll vote to support Ukraine. The, I like the Ukraine bit. So. And they still I, have to I'm vote just, to. Just throwing to things out they also there, have right? to vote to give money to Israel. Yeah. So there there, is, there's, they'll agree on that. There's yeah, but realistic they things. Don't have a gov- we don't have a government. I mean, if they ever get together. <laughs> but there are realistic bargaining yeah. chips that can be put on the table. And that's how that kind of deal would go down. But I still think that mm-hmm. this is the biggest political gift of all. You guys wanted control of the house. You got it. I mean, you got it. And now, if you could ever get through your speaker clusterfuck, we got a, a looming shutdown of the government in five weeks. Exactly. So let's we're gonna cross our arms and sit back and watch you figure that shit out. All right. So let's summarize. We didn't fix Israel and the Middle oh, East. Damn. Uh, we did jack shit about the house. <laughs> uh, but we could we could pontificate with some winners and losers. Mm, okay. That's easy. Go for it, Jen. All right. My winner, Claudia Golden, who won the Nobel in economics for studying women in the workforce, and her research uncovered the reasons for gender gaps in the labor force, participation, and earnings. My other winner, Andy Ostroy, is going to have a nice birthday next oh week. Happy God. birthday, Andy. Stop it. I hate the idea of turning 48, Jen. So thanks for, <laughs> thanks for reminding me of that. 29 all over again. My loser, the brutality of Hamas. My winner is Russia. As we focus on the atrocity that took place in Israel, our attention is not in the Ukraine and the crisis we face in Europe from the Russian war of aggression is getting worse. My loser here are the democratic socialists who couldn't manage to unequivocally condemn the horrors committed by Hamas. My winner, Democrats, who've been given an enormous gift this week through Republicans' unprecedented incompetence and chaos. My loser... Donald Trump. I had to mention him more. I can go through an episode oh God. without mentioning his name once. You know, because I love him so much. Donald Trump, who once again couldn't stand the attention not being on him. So he made it about him with outrageously offensive, insensitive, deranged comments about Hezbollah, Hamas, Israel, and Biden in the face of atrocity and war. Which gets us to our weekly rant. Israel just suffered its worst, most horrific attack in its 75-year history, the worst massacre of Jews since the Holocaust. Innocent civilians dragged from their homes, beaten, 
tortured, shot, and killed. Seniors and young people slaughtered. Women raped. Civilians burned alive. Babies, children, beaten and shot and burned to death. Soldiers beheaded. Corpses dragged through the streets, spit on, desecrated, and displayed like trophies. Not by freedom fighters or fighters of any sort, but by pathetic cowards, terrorists, a bunch of animals, savages, barbarians. And I am sick and tired of all the equivocating, the whataboutisms, the false equivalencies. Nothing, I repeat, nothing justifies this inhumanity, this butchery. And let's be perfectly fucking clear. There are no moral equivalencies here. None. Not even close. Last time I checked, Israel has never massacred innocent men, women, and children. No one's been burned alive or beheaded, especially children. This was, as Israeli Prime Minister Bibi Netanyahu said, sheer evil. Thousands have already been killed, and many more will surely be as well. And that's terrible and sad and unfortunate. And unnecessary. And that's partly because Hamas has cowardly chosen to base its operations in densely populated Gaza, hiding its weapons in civilian buildings, using its own citizens and Israeli and American hostages as human shields. So I say this to my fellow Jews and to non-Jews alike. It's perfectly okay and in fact necessary, critical to unequivocally condemn Hamas without feeling compelled to bring up whatever warts you believe Israel has. Because while you may think that makes you appear fair, balanced, and compassionate, all it does is serve to normalize and justify the most atrociously violent acts history has ever witnessed. So just repeat after me. What Hamas did was despicable, brutal, barbaric, unjustified. Period. End of fucking story. All right, so let's bring out Sarah Tuttlesinger. She is a writer and author of the book Jerusalem Drawn and Quartered, and who also works for the Times of Israel. She was born and raised in Venice Beach, California, and has lived in Israel for the past 13 years. She now lives in Jerusalem with her kids, where she writes stories about people, climbs roofs, and explores the roads not taken, and loves talking with strangers. Sarah, welcome into the back room. Thank you, Andy. Thanks for sharing space with me here. So the first thing I want to ask you is, how are you doing? How are your kids doing? You have two teenagers. How's it going there for you personally? Well, physically safe, but we're not okay. And I don't know anyone who is okay right now um, in this part of the world. Yeah, it is sort of a nightmarish, dystopian reality right now. We're all stumbling around into this pall of, of grief, anxiety, our our sense of security and the in the foundations that were supposed to keep us safe is just totally eroded. We're heartbroken. We're, we're still counting her dead. Mm-hmm. And and the numbers are rising by the day, by the hour sometimes. And uh, we also aren't yet in a place where we can take a deep breath and actually mourn properly because we're still anxious about what's coming next. So it, it's many factors all at once. Mm-hmm. Sadness, absolute despair, and uh, and very real fear. Uh, many of us are likening it to, um, in some ways, to the Shiva period in Jewish mourning, where you, uh, after you bury your dead, you sit together for, for seven days um, uh, 
And the country certainly does seem to be going through some of that with the added burden of checking the news every few seconds to see if there are any updates, getting red alert updates from um, news of rockets landing in the south or in the center of Jerusalem. And then just when we're out in the streets, just checking over our shoulders at mm-hmm. all times and, and that, that sense of waiting for something terrible to happen. Mm-hmm. And where are you physically? Where do you live in relation to where, I, where all the, the violence is occurring? So I'm in Jerusalem right now in the southeast corner of the city. But the thing you have to also understand about Israel is we are the the geographic size of a fingernail. Right. We're I would, like size of New Jersey, we're six hours mm-hmm. root to tip wide. So um, the, the closest, the physical proximity is incredibly intense here. But more than that, the emotional proximity is very close. There's there's no six degrees of separation here. Right. Like there's barely even one degree. We all are are so interwoven, regardless of our political leanings or our um, our, our you know religious um, affiliations or even uh, if anything really. We're very, it's a very close, very intense country. So my first question to you is something you spoke about a minute ago, and that is, and I've heard this from other friends in Israel, is the shattering of the sense of security that outside of an isolated suicide bombing, which Israel has Israelis have dealt with for decades, the kind of land, sea, air, invasion, brutality, the kind of massacre that Jews haven't seen since the Holocaust, that that just was unfathomable. And so the fact that there was this colossal breakdown, this failure on Israel's part, and the United States to, to a certain degree as well, in intelligence and in detection has just really shattered that sense of security and created this mass of vulnerability and fear. Speak to that for a moment as someone who who lives there. So when we first got news of the rockets early in the morning on Saturday, before we knew about the infiltration, the invasion and and the the absolute mayhem, and before we even knew that anyone had been injured in the rockets, my uh, social media feed lit up with quips like, oh, this is one way to, you know, commemorate 50 years after the, the Yom Kippur War with another spectacular military uh, intelligence failure. And um, someone else wrote, oh, th- thanks a lot, Mr. Security, because Prime Minister Netanyahu has always run a campaign on being um, Israel's staunch defender, the staunch defender of the Jewish people, and, and with him we'll all be safe, etc. So those quips have stopped right now. Because then as the devastation became apparent, as we just suddenly got hit with this onslaught of, of news and and names of, of people and, and the faces um, of the of the victims and the and the and the kidnapped people who are, are still completely unaccounted for in, in Gaza, we we stopped doing that. Israel's very good at pulling together in a crisis. That said, um, the uh, IDF chief of staff has come out to say, yes, there was an intelligence failure. We're going to be investigating this. Uh, we now know, as of a few hours ago, that um, Hamas themselves had uh, you know, the released footage of, of mock, um, sort of, of a mock assault on the border and mock assault on, on the towns, um, you know, for the actual real attack. Like there, there was information out there 
Like it's isn't it, it's very hard to understand how this got missed, overlooked, um, and, and I'm sure there are a lot of reasons. I, I can't speak to all of them now, uh, but we will be. There will be a national reckoning around this, and it's going to just completely change the way. Um, it's going to completely change the the, the face of Israel forever, mm-hmm. not just in our streets and in, in our families and amongst ourselves, but also in the in, in our military establishment. It's mm-hmm. going to have to be a. There have been so uh, many um, comparisons, in some sense, to like nine eleven, what Americans mm-hmm. went through. And when you say it's going to change the face of life in Israel and politically as well, like I remember after 9-11, I remember just the simple things of like going to an airport. Well, I'm never going to do that again and think the same way, right? Now I have to look around and think, am I going to die by a bomb or a plane being hijacked and crashed into a mountain? Um, It will change things. And there does need to be analysis and investigation done after this. Um, But... I don't understand how it could have happened. I mean, people are saying things like Netanyahu was so distracted with the West Bank and diverting military resources there, distracted with self-preservation, you know, with changing the judicial system and and the protests that have taken place week after week after week, that he just, he wasn't Mr. Security. And so this personal situation that he now finds himself in eventually, which is, I failed. I, I'm not Mr. Security. The worst massacre against Jews since the Holocaust occurred on my watch. He's going to have to face the music for that. But we learned overnight that there's a, an emergency evacuation order, that Gazans in the north are being told to immediately get to the south. There is this tremendous humanitarian situation that is occurring, but I, I, I just can't get away from if you want to ensure that this kind of massacre never happens again. If you want to prevent that, and you need to go after Hamas, and you need to decimate Hamas, and Hamas does not believe in rules of engagement. They're not an army. They don't wear uniforms. They don't drive around in tanks. They don't fire missiles from military battalions. They're in the city surrounded by their own people and using their people as human shields. What is ultimately the alternative for Israel if they do want to avoid the carnage from collateral damage of innocent people in Gaza? This is such a tough question, and it's one that we're all wrestling with in our different ways. Look, I come from the Shared Society Peace Camp. I'm I'm very much a staunch uh, supporter of the left in Israel. Um, I'd like to think I still am. And this has certainly, this has really hit me hard. But we... It's very difficult to think about peace right now with um, n- not only with what, you know, said, forget Hamas, who came in and, and butchered, butchered our people, butchered just in 1,300 people, beheaded babies. And those are two words that should never be in the same sentence, right? right. Like, mm-hmm. I can't even believe my mouth can wrap around those words. Raped women filmed this despicable desecration of, of corpses, and um, so I mean, the idea of actually sitting down and negotiating with that is horrific and all. But also, and also seeing um, so much support for their actions um, from from around the uh, 
around the different Palestinian communities in, in Gaza, the West Bank, and in, in certain pockets in Israel, it's also just staggering. And, and, and the U.S. Lot, and in oh, the U.S. And the, sure, sure, but look, uh, don't get me get that. I, I can't even um, begin to wrap my head around the, the social media onslaught from uh, so-called or so people who so you know so identify on the left who are who are supporting this. This is this is not freedom fighting. Mm-hmm. This what Hamas has done is actually only hurt innocent people in Gaza because there will be and you know the response from Israel is already strong and it's going to only get stronger. But what I wanted to say, and what I wanted to say is there are also Palestinian voices speaking up against this, mm-hmm. and there are um, certainly Palestinian citizens of Israel or. Um, Arab Israelis, as they're sometimes uh, known as, uh, depending on how they want to identify, who are um, doing all they can to support um, support their Jewish brothers and sisters, and also you know show up for the uh, to help volunteer for the army, bringing supplies in, bottles of water from their villages, cooking meals. Um, my friend's son, my friend Mohammed Darash's son, Awad was. Uh, paramedic who happened to be near Kibbutz Be'eri, where the um, the nature party was taking place and where this, this horrific massacre occurred, where all these young people were gunned down, fleeing from the rockets. Hamas was out waiting for them, knowing that they would hear the sirens, see the, yeah. see the rockets, and, and, and then take off through the exits. And they were just waiting there with, with guns and knives and just mowed them all down. Um, and Awad, this paramedic, um, a Muslim Palestinian Israeli or Muslim Arab Israeli was there, and uh, he he stayed on to to try to heal and um, and treat the wounded. And even after he was um, he was shot, and Hamas took his ambulance, drove it into Gaza, and and he he died. He recently just died, and his family just buried him. And so it's so important. To, that we, Israelis, Jewish Israelis, who are reeling from this, remember that this is, it shouldn't be, uh, that, that we can't let our, our anger and our fear spill over into the streets amongst our, um, our you know, the, the other folks who live here, the Palestinian citizens of Israel, the Arab Israelis within our communities. We have to look for ways to build bridges with them if we're going to move forward and find a solution out of this, we have to partner with people and and strengthen those connections and um, and have our children know their children and and get to a place where we have genuine caring and concern for each other. And it's really, I got to tell you, it's really hard to do that right now because mm-hmm. they're so easy to fall behind our own lines and put up this barbed wire around ourselves to protect us. But in the long run, that's not going to work. We have to eventually get to a place where we can speak to each other and, and, and build a solution moving forward that will work for everybody. Mm-hmm. But, or and, I should say, and we also need to get rid of Hamas and just destroy them, but not in such a way where something else that's even worse takes over. I mean, we saw what happened with ISIS, right? And we don't want to create something like that mm-hmm. out of Gaza either. Now, for the record, I'm not a military analyst. I'm not a politician. Um, but 
but I've been living here for a long time. I know people from all sorts of communities here, from the left, from the right, um, Muslim, Jewish, Christian communities, Druze communities, uh, religious, secular across all, all these different groups too. And at the end of the day, we are stuck in this tiny geographic fingernail together and we have to find a way to, um, to work together. We don't have to be best friends forever, but we have to find a way to partner and, and build something out of this destruction. And I don't know how to do that yet. Mm -hmm. But no, what I do know is that when people in the United States and all over the world send us messages of uh, love and solidarity and, and empathy, it helps us feel a little bit safer despite just the complete insecurity we're feeling. And when we start to feel safer, we can feel stronger and we can get back to a place of, of empathy mm -hmm. and, and, uh, no, I, I mean, I, I just, I don't envy you and I don't envy Israelis and I struggle with so many things and I have so many questions for you. I just want to follow up on something you started to say before about you personally being a member of the left. And I have a lot of friends who are lefties in Israel against the occupation, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and, you know, sometimes if you, if things don't hit you at home, it's easy to espouse opinions and have the luxury of taking certain positions, perhaps. And over the years, I've struggled with the issue of Israel's need to protect itself and how she does that. And I always, I always end up by saying, look, I'm not going to sit in a Starbucks in Manhattan and tell Israel what to do. I don't have bombs flying over my head. I don't worry about going into a pizza place and getting blown up. I don't worry about my kid getting killed in that way. So I am not going to sit here thousands of miles away and tell Israel what to do. Israel's got to do what it's got to do and then live with its decisions. But I'm very curious... Because the, the, the anti-government fervor, the anti-Netanyahu fervor has been so strong the last couple of years. Do you see any kind of appreciable shift by people who yesterday said one thing, but are now like, holy shit, we just got massacred, and now I feel this way? Do you see like an inflection point of people maybe realizing, you know what, maybe some of what I was thinking before was a little naive, just a little bit, because look how vulnerable we are. Look, I, I think... Uh... I certainly think that's happening. Um, but, and I also think that what we're seeing now too is um, sort of a beautiful show of, of unity in Israel. And that's not just amongst the Jews, but amongst everyone who's outraged by the atrocities. And again, um, that includes um, Christians and Muslims and Druze and, and people of other faiths and other nationalities who live here. And in a country that is really fraught politically, where you know tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands, were rallying against the government, just you know, the, literally seven days before the attack, a week before, um, for at least thirty-nine weeks. Um, what you're seeing now are people setting those differences aside and just showing up and supporting one another. Mm -hmm. Now that I think also what you said is certainly. Uh, the case amongst many people in the peace camp. Um, there, you know, we are having to, you know, we're, we're having to remind ourselves, though, that Hamas does not necessarily represent all of the Palestinian people. Um, but again, it's hard to do that when you see so many Palestinian voices celebrating the attacks. Mm -hmm. 
again, though, there are voices that are condemning the attacks too. Mm -hmm. And those are the voices you have to amplify and listen to. When things calm down now, I hope that we will remember what it looked like, though, to stand together as, as brothers and sisters across our differences and pull together so that when we get back to being angry at the prime minister or at, what it, or at any leader or at any situation, we do recall that at one point we were able to, to have this moment of unity. And so as we move forward in, in reshaping what this country is going to look like in, in all its permutations, um, I'd like to think that we'll be able to do that with a, with a healthier dialogue between these different tribes that are all living in this land. Mm -hmm. um, I'm, I'm an optimist and maybe I'm still naive a little bit, but I, I'm, I'm willing to be that way because I'm not going to let my own fear and my own, yes, my own rage too. And I, and I have a lot of it swallow me. Uh, right now I'm going to allow myself to feel those things. But it's certain. I hope that I'm going to be able to uh, not let them go. I can never let this go. Never, never fucking let this go. But move forward with other people who are willing to move forward with me from all different backgrounds to mm -hmm. together and 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 build something better. Yeah, That's it's safe. just such a. It is such a challenge and such a dilemma because governments and men who run governments often are the culprits in making many decisions for us and we have to live with them. Um, but there are just realities. Like when you talk about people on the left who say, you know, I'm against the occupation. How does an attack like last week move Israel away from occupation? It's only going to get it further into occupation. And I, I just wonder if many people are starting to connect those dots and say, you know what, maybe this is a much more complicated, nuanced problem. Like, it's not just what happened in the last two years. It's what happened in the last two centuries. There's so much history here. I mean, I'm a Jew. I don't like oppression. I don't like seeing kids killed. I don't care where, what nationality or culture they come from. But I also have a deep sense of, of cultural connection to my people and the persecution that we have faced throughout history. Sorry, I just heard gunfire outside. Hold on. I may need to jump off. So yeah, yeah, I listen. I, um, okay, it was gunfire. Are you? Do you need to I'll, leave or have, what? No. Where are you gonna? I'm gonna stay away from the window. Uh. So this is the reality we're in. We're in the southeast corner of Jerusalem. We live in. Um, in a building that's uh, um, mixed between um, religious and secular and Arab and Jewish residents. And Jerusalem can be a very fraught place. And so when you asked me how close am I to the fighting, you know, we're not, we're not down south, but um, we're close enough to East Jerusalem where, where we are, um, but in, we're not a, we're not a settlement, mm -hmm. and we're not in East Jerusalem. But we're close enough where our building's been targeted a few times by Molotov cocktails and now shooting. So, and who's doing? Is there street battles going on, like between? I mean, oh who... no, no, no! It's it's also just uh, thank God not. But that's something to think about. Okay, like so, just random fire of think about mm -hmm. it. when this started on Saturday. Excuse me, I'm a little raw and messy right now. I'm a little 
a little scared. Um, when this started on Saturday, last six days ago, six and a half days ago, it occurred to many of us that this could spill over into the streets in a real way. Mm-hmm. Um, or it could really take off in the West Bank. We didn't know if it was just going to be an invasion of the South or if uh, it was also going to be an invasion from Lebanon overseen by Iran. We, mm-hmm. And we still still don't know what's next, okay? Mm-hmm. We don't know. What, but here in Jerusalem, it's a mixed city. Um there has been violence um, in the streets. Um, there, we we still haven't quite gotten over the horrors of the second intifada in the mm-hmm. early years of uh, the 2000, 2000, 2001, and really until two thousand six. So, um, how do you cope with this and try to just live your life at the same time? I mean, this is stuff we can't conceptualize in the United States, even after an attack like 9-11, because that was isolated. It's, it was, uh, we don't live with the threat of war, with the threat of death and carnage. I, I just can't, my heart goes out to you and your children and everybody in Israel, because I, I don't, I, I can't fathom what it's like to live like that. How do you deal with that? We don't, we don't and we do, and we do and we don't. We're a nation fraught with PTSD. Mm-hmm. Um, Palestinians too, like it, it's something we all, all have in common. Mm-hmm. The river to the sea, we're all really fucked up in that from from living under uh, all these different things. Um, and it manifests in different ways. But we're also at oh. extreme, but we Jews have been living under some form of existential crisis for thousands of years. Mm-hmm. Like we're, it's not that we're good at this. We're just, we're, it's part of our, the fabric of our, of our DNA really. Mm-hmm. And it's embedded in our very basic codes. And so we know how to be resilient. And this applies to anybody, as far as I'm concerned, who was either um, born Jewish or who throws his or her fate in with the Jewish people and, and, and joins the tribe or in, in even our allies, you have to be resilient to align yourself with us. Um, and so that resilience is going to pull us through. It always does. It always does. And um, and again, I'm still optimistic. And some might say naive, but I choose to think that I'm just really optimistic and, and right when I say that it, we will get through this and it's going to be, it's, it's never going to be okay. Because how can it be? Mm-hmm. But it will, um, but, it'll, but we will, we'll, we'll come out of this period to the other side and we'll be able to um, I'm not sure what the future will look like but I, I do have a sense that it won't be entirely dystopian and bleak that we'll find moments of connection rays of light and any ways to um, to keep building and learning how to trust again mm-hmm going to really choose to believe that right now well you have to you have to stay optimistic what's the alternative you asked you asked me about my kids earlier my son's close friend just they haven't even actually buried the sister his sister yet Mm -hmm. and their family's facing just tremendous grief i'm my daughter also is a a deeply gentle and sensitive person and she's watching her her friends lose uncles and cousins and um, I'm also just trying to protect them from 
the onslaught of, of social media and, and news that they're getting bombarded with on their phones. Their phones are their lifeline, connects them with their friends, right? But it also can be this, this tool of, of absolute destruction if, if they click on the wrong link and they, and they see something that Hamas, Hamas's social media channel sent out, which is happening. Um, several years ago, we were much younger. We were we went to the Gaza war together, and there were sirens overhead. And I used to pick them up, one under each arm. At, um, they're close in age, and I would run to the shelter. And then you know we would eat Pringles and play cards. And the few times that we didn't get to the shelter before the the impact was for the rockets hit near us. I was able to we hurtled to the ground, and I covered them with my body, and I protected them. And I can't do that this time. Mm. I can't protect them from, I can't protect their hearts and their souls from words that are just, from words that they can read and understand, but from a situation that's just incomprehensible. And that's why, and I'm just going to speak as viscerally as I can, that's why I, I feel like people in this country just need to shut the fuck up. I feel like there's an appreciation that people just don't have in this country to understand what you just said about when do Americans have to huddle with their babies to keep them alive from bombs? Like, that's why people just need to be quiet. This is a subject we don't know about. It's nuanced. It's complicated. There's con contextual information. There's centuries of history. Like, Israel, I, I just say it again and again and again. Israel has to do what she feels it needs to do to protect its people and its country. And it's going to have to live with those decisions. But when people try to armchair it now, especially from abroad, it's like, shut up, you know? I think even now when, when people learn to talk about context or say, well, that we have to make sure Israel doesn't respond disproportionately. Like, what the fuck does that mean when right. you have 40 babies beheaded and you have, you know, images of, of women that were actually filmed by Hamas bleeding between their legs and you have entire families that are wiped off the wiped off the map what is what is proportional what, what does a proportional response look like what, what how would you respond and i think well that's what you have to do you have like, to ask people uh, how would they respond if you woke up in the middle right. of the night and some dude was standing in your bedroom and you, a machete uh, or a gun or anything just standing there all you saw was a shadow and you have a gun in your night table you 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 shoot and you ask questions later right is that proportional are you supposed to wait to see, oh, do they have a knife? Because if they have a knife, I won't use my gun. I have to go and try to find a knife. Like, it's moronic. It's moronic right. when there's an existential crisis, when there's a threat to your very existence. Mm -hmm. And that's really what it feels like. Mm -hmm. And so when we see people coming out and saying things like, like okay, President Biden made a crystal mm -hmm. clear. He's, he used those words. I want to be crystal clear. I mean, yep. and, and it was a... It was exquisite. He brought me to tears. Mm -hmm. um, I, um, truth be told, I'm an easy cry these days. <laughs> but really, I was so moved by what he said and by what other God, um, what other leaders around the world have been saying too. To just where they're not talking about nuance and context and history, there will be time to talk about that. Mm. But right now, yeah, and I and I and I want to see more people come out and say. Well, on the one hand, you know, we can support Palestinian liberation. This was an atrocity. Mm -hmm. You know, any movement, any country 
is not allowed to violate human rights like this. And any liberation movement is also not allowed to violate that's human right. rights like this. This is national law, right? I'm not a legal expert, but I believe that that's the case. And that's what they did. And for people on, on the left to say things like, well, if you don't support Hamas, you don't support Palestinian liberation. Are you kidding me? Because that how, in so saying that, they're actually hurting the Palestinian movement because... It's, it's going to drive people away from actually supporting, um, from supporting folks, and you know, and and that's not something I, I'm going to get into particularly right now more than I just have. But what we need is what we've been seeing by and large from international leaders, and what I've been seeing by and large from my my friends, and but I'd still like to see more of, which is just unequivocal condemnation of what happened, and. Um, and it's just a, a raw understanding of the this, this of the absolute horror we're facing, and and later on we can have more uh, more nuanced discussions mm. about um, about the history and the region, and certainly a, you know it's, I'm always happy to speak with people more about that later on too. But as um, but we're just reeling right now. We're at, we're absolutely reeling, and and it's not over. It's not over. Although I remember after nine eleven, there was still some. I remember, in, in, I was all the way in California. We felt some insecurity there too. Like, well, what if they hit our our trains, or what if that? Mm-hmm. What if this, or what? But that dissipated pretty quickly. But what now Israel's facing is a protracted war. We're a ground invasion tomorrow, I believe, on Saturday. Mm-hmm. Schedule. Um, we're hearing, you know, gunfire outside our windows and our houses are getting hit with Molotov cocktails. Not not all our houses and not everywhere, but enough isolated incidents add up. And anyway, one isolated incident is enough to make anybody feel afraid to to close their eyes for too long and sleep. Yeah. Well, like so- you said, it's all about phases. There's going to be so many phases to this. And the first phase is just to stay healthy, stay alive hope for the best, stay optimistic. There is a lot of support. I could tell, I mean, I, last night I went down a rabbit hole. I was watching people in Japan in the streets singing the Israeli national anthem. Same thing in Rome and other countries. There is a, an enormous amount of support for Israel that drowns out the lunacy that's taking place at some college campuses. I think people do get it, but you know, sometimes people overplay their hands and Hamas just overplayed its card this time and did something which was so atrocious that it's very hard, very hard for people not to rally around Israel. Um, I thank you so much for coming on. Obviously, you're living in the middle of chaos. Uh, It is really important for people to hear from people in Israel. So I appreciate you coming on and talking with me, and and hopefully we can do this again and just stay safe. Thank you, Andy. Thanks for having me, and, and thanks for all you're doing in the world to to bring light and and goodness and understanding uh, in, in many different ways. Really right. appreciate it. Take care. Your work. Thank you. Bye-bye. This episode of The Back Room was edited and produced by me, Andy Ostroy. It was co-edited and co-produced by Maddie Rosenberg and co-produced by Jen Hamoud. Our theme song was composed by Andrew Hollander and our logo was designed by Cricket Langell. And special thanks to Patricia Wind, please take a moment to rate and review the podcast and also follow or subscribe. Until next time, keep your eyes on Washington, Hollywood, and your own backyards, and have a great week.